Listener Production. I came home one night and I couldn't wait to get home and we had couches that faced each other in our living room in our then home and I said, how are you going? You know, expecting it to be all beautiful little family with the cat and the new kid and our house and what else could be better? And you said, not not good. I said, what do you mean not good? And then bang, the floodgates opened and it was on and I thought, shit, this is very real. And I remember coming across and giving you a big hug and saying, everything's going to be all right. Hi, I'm Jess Rowe and this is the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show, a podcast that skips the small talk and goes big and deep. From love to loss and everything in between, I want to show you a different side of people who seem to have it all together in these raw and honest conversations about the things that matter. I don't know about you, but in this time of social isolation, I really crave connected conversations. So I'm going to dig deep to give you a new window into the souls of the people we're curious to get to know and understand. There might be tears as well as laughter as we celebrate the real-life flaws and vulnerabilities that make us human. Peter Overton is one of Australia's most well-known journalists. He anchors the Channel 9 News in Sydney every night. We begin our bulletin tonight with breaking news. Good evening, Peter Overton in the Sydney newsroom. Australians are tonight honouring the memory of Bob Hawke. He's the Premier of the state, but at home, Dominic Perrottet is a husband and father first. I caught up with the Premier. And he's also a reporter for 60 Minutes. And that's when I discovered there's another side to Tom Cruise, that when he's angry, the cool man of Hollywood can become downright icy. Here's the the thing, Peter. You're stepping over a line now. You're stepping over a line. You know you are. I suppose they're questions that people want to know. Peter, you want to know. As a reporter, I've covered too many stories to count. A lot of them are memorable, but there's one that people ask me about more than any other. Nick Vojcic. And he also happens to be my husband. I call him Petey. We've been married for 18 years. I had to convince him to be a guest on my podcast. He does not like talking about himself. He wants the focus to be on other people and their stories. But I wanted to share with you the side to my husband that makes him so very special. Cannot believe it. I have my husband, my darling Petey, here in the studio. But I've kind of got you here under duress, don't I? Yes, I, I can't believe I'm sitting here with you, Jessica. I love your podcast, but I love it when you interview other people, not your husband. It was so difficult to convince you to come on in, but mm. because you're such a supporter of mine, you agreed. Mm. I love to talk about myself. Mm. <laughs> well, I said I'll get my people to talk to your people, then I realised I have no people, I am my people. So... That's why I'm here, because I had a good chat to myself and I said, I will support you. (laughs) (laughs) But what is it about you that means you don't like talking about yourself? Because most people love the sound of their own voices. I just do what I do and you know that. You know, I tell you what I do (laughs) and you give me a pat on the back. But I think uh, we all need a pat on the back occasionally. So I'm very, very strong at supporting particularly the young people in the newsroom. And, and the older ones as well, the veterans. But I don't seek to put out what I do. I do what I do. I'm paid well to do what I do. And if you get the occasional pat on the back, it's very nice. You talk about the help that you give people. Mm-hmm. How we first met many, many years ago was when I was doing work experience. And even though, okay, sparks didn't fly then between us, but I remember at the there was time... No current. There was no no current. <laughs> well, no. I was wearing overalls from memory. <laughs> if an electrician had put the multimeter on us, there was no current. <laughs> we were at very different stages of our lives, very weren't we? Stages. Very different. Yes. What stuck with me, though, from that time was I remember thinking, what a kind man you were. You took the time to explain how to do a news story and... Because normally when you do work experience, you see people run a million miles. They don't want to have anything to do with the work experience person. And you spend your day reading the newspaper thinking, please, someone talk to me. You, though, took me out on a news story and it was Kostya Zhu mm-hmm. when he first arrived in Australia. Couldn't speak English. And I was there by your side. Because I started on work experience. My beautiful father 
had a relationship with the great Sydney radio station, Powerhouse 2UE, and they did a radiothon. And I was about 15 and I said to Dad, I really can see myself working in the media because I'm very interested in people's stories. I love to know about people and their backstory. And I'd love to do work experience. Could you make it happen? And I get about 30 requests a week about could you make work experience happen? And uh, Dad made it happen. And I remember really making the luck happen for me and I got on air age 17. But I've always remembered the opportunity that I was given then. So when a work experience kid comes through the newsroom or a young person comes in, i never, ever forget all those years ago that I was given an opportunity and now they've been given an opportunity. And you can soon tell whether they're passionate about it or not. And even if they're not passionate, you still at least, well, maybe I'm a bit perverse, but I want to make them talk to me to find out what makes them tick. So why did I help you? Maybe it was the overalls you were wearing, but... But because you, look at you, you went on to have an illustrious career and still having it. You know, you've reinvented yourself a few times, but you know, you had the passion and uh, you were very pretty. Oh, thanks, my <laughs> darling. So I want to talk about, you mentioned radio. What was that like when you first started? Because it the work environment was very different during those times. The announcers would be in studios, smoking cigarettes. Mm. What happened? I remember going on air age 16 or 17 and I was in the studio and I had to do a sports update and Chris Kearns had one of the most beautiful voices in radio, a real radio man, and it was my first ever time on air. And I went into the studio and he had about five Benson and Hedges burning in different ashtrays. It was this plume of cigarette smoke and he loved to bet on the horses and he went... It's time now for a sports update with Peter Overton. Afternoon, Peter. And he just buried his head in the form guide and the cigarettes. And I went, thank you very much, Chris. I in the sports and, 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 and. And I looked up and all I could see was this wall of Benson and Hedges smoke. And Kernsey on the phone going, yeah, can I get 10 bucks on the second at uh, Rose Hill? No, Rose, yep, yep, yep. So I had to keep going. And uh, I remember going home that night and saying to Dad, did you, did you hear me? He said, outstanding, son, outstanding. <laughs> but that was the environment that we were in. It was, it was fantastic, but so different. I remember the teleprinters in the newsroom and I was in the work experience kid in my early days in the newsroom. Not many people were talking to me. It was one of those moments where I was just, oh, we've got another work experience kid. But I was in my collar and tie and I was determined that this was going to be my career. And I'll never forget the newsreader. I won't say his name, but he was on air. And I went over to the teleprinter, the telex machine. There's no computers. That's how you got the feed of the news. And I'm looking there and this thing comes up about Margaret Thatcher and um, MPs in a bomb blast. And I ripped it off and I opened the newsroom booth door and I said, in silence, handed it to him, but gesticulating, saying, this is... And that was like a real moment for me where I thought, oh, I have got news sense, and I was recognised in that newsroom, and that was a turning point for me. And then a mentor of yours came along and thought, I see some potential in this Mm. this young bloke. Well, I was at Macquarie University, and I finished my economics degree there with communications sprinkled through it. And to UE, I was hoping for a full-time gig there, but for whatever reason, that the timing wasn't right. But Graeme McNeese, another legend of Australian media, they just started this satellite broadcasting service called Club Superstation, and it went into about six clubs in New South Wales. So it didn't have a huge reach or audience. So not quite a superstation at that point. No, just an <laughs> operation. But it was, it was state-of-the-art technology. It was fantastic. And he needed a young bloke uh, to come and learn the trade. And I, I jumped at it. I finished my degree... And I worked so hard, six days a week, 12, 13 hours a day. And, you know, I learnt to ad lib. And I think that's what stood me in great stead when I do the news now. And if something happens or when I was up 60 minutes for nearly a decade, you know, that's thinking on your feet the whole time. And I remember I, I wouldn't know the back end of a horse from the front end of a horse, let alone the back end of a greyhound or the front end of a greyhound. But I had to host five state horse racing and five state greyhound racing and and uh, with the greyhounds, it was funny. I was maybe 19 or 20 and 
I'd come on at night and I'd go, good evening, everyone, and welcome to Five State Greyhound Racing. I'm Peter Overton. Tonight we've got races from Brisbane, Sydney, Tasmania. Uh, we're in Adelaide. We'll also go to Perth, and I'll be your host for the next seven hours. Oh. <laughs> and I'd go, let's check an updated market now on the first at Wentworth Park in Sydney. 10 to 1, 5 to 1, 6 to 1, 5 to 2, and I'll go through the odds. And then dividends are through on Angle Park Race 2, 520, 620, and 590. The Quinella paid 552.40, and the trifecta on 5, 7, and 9 paid $2.20. They're about to jump in Tasmania. I can see the green lights on, the lures rolling. We've lost sound. I'm going to have to call it myself. The pink, the brown, the yellow, <laughs> the green. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway. We'll figure that out. Anyway, updated market through now on the second at the Gabba, five to one, ten to one, six to one, and I do this, and I, I, and then halfway through it, you go, we've got a break now. With me is Richard Wilkins. Richard's, of course, playing music clips in between races. Richard, what have you got? Well, Pete, I've got the latest from Jimmy Barnes and Cold Chisel. It's a great piece and a great song, and he go on and Richard, you know, Richard's sixty-seven now, I think. So this we're talking thirty-five plus years ago, and he. He'd waffle for so long that we couldn't pay the click. I said, sorry, Richard, they're about to jump in Tasmania. We're going to have to leave you there. Sorry, Richard, we'll come back to Jimmy Barnes and Richard in a minute. And that's what oh. I do. And I'd get home. I was still at mum and dad's because I was only about 19 and I'd get into bed, into my single bed downstairs and I'd just be lying there going 5 to 1, 6 to 1, 7 to 1, 10 to 1, t- trifecta on this and I, I just couldn't stop. I couldn't stop. But it taught me so much. Incredible training. And you know what? Richard Wilkins is still one of my great friends. We've been at nine together. I've been at nine. This is my 31st year. And Richard's about the same, if not a bit longer. And Graham McNeese, of course, who gave me the opportunity, is godfather to one of our daughters. So they're very important people, those people, to keep relationships. Critical, actually. Too many people, once they've used you up, they move on very quickly. But something my parents have taught me never, ever to do. And that is what... I think is very special about you and was what drew me to you when I met you again many years mm. later. Not my handsomeness? Well, you, of course you're <laughs> handsome. And also you, I reckon you get better with age. Thank I say you. that to you. You mm-hmm. get more and more handsome mm-hmm. the older you get, my darling. Mm-hmm. And your decency is what I think shines out of you. And this is why I want to talk to you, my darling, is that you are very shy about that and your goodness, you don't like to spread that around in the sense of telling people, oh, I do this or I've done this and you're... Well, it's not hard to be a decent human being. But for some people it is. What yeah. is it that has made you the way you are and your moral compass set the way it's so beautifully set? Oh, thank you, Jessica. That's, I think, my upbringing, mum and dad and very much watching my father, who is Professor of Paediatric Anesthesia at the Children's Hospital. So that's, a you know, a, a commitment to giving people a start in life and very sick babies. And I used to watch him and, you know, he and I, like Allegra and I, thick as these, still are to this day, and he's 84 now. And I watch his decency with people and his decency with parents of very, very ill children and how he used to have to say to them, I'm sorry your child has died. We've done everything we can. Or the joy that he would have when he'd say to parents, you had a very, very ill baby, but it's a delight to say after eight months that you can take your baby home. And watching him deal with people, I suppose, is the overarching thought pattern here from me is it's not hard to be decent. It's not hard to have good manners. It's not hard to say, how are you? It's not hard to pause and when you say, how are you, actually listen to how they are. Because too many people, how are you? And someone might say, I'm not feeling so well. Oh, that's great. Okay. And what are we doing now? That's so prevalent. I watch it all the time. So I don't know, decency, it's just It's very kind of you to say, but it's a nice way to be. It's a nice way to live. And I think in an industry where decency can sometimes be challenged, um, it's nice to be consistent. And I think in the newsroom, I'm well respected. I know I'm well respected because I'm a team player and uh, I've got all my colleagues back and we're all equals, whether... You know, it's Frank the Cleaner who I stop and ask, how are you? And he tells me how he is. And 
the plumber or the locksmith, they're all my friends because they enrich your lives and they are all part of the success we all have in my industry and in my employer at Channel 9. So it Frank the Cleaner makes us have a nice workplace environment to work in. Stu the locksmith keeps the place secure. The plumber keeps the pipes clear. Um, the receptionist is the first person who people call. All those people are critical to the success of 60 Minutes or Nine News or the Today Show because we are all cogs in a wheel. And that wheel can only turn when everyone is, in my opinion, working beautifully together and we're all on the same level. So I see too many people who wouldn't even know that we had plumbers or a locksmith or an electrician or whatever. And I remember at the Logies one year I accepted a Logie on most outstanding news coverage for I think our, our coverage of the bushfires in the Blue Mountains. And I got up and I, in front of all my peers in the black tie, I said, I'm just a big cock in a big wheel. <laughs> I said, I'm a small cock in a big wheel. <laughs> and everyone had had a few sherbies by then, so it brought the house down. Well, you were genuine, my darling, about it. And speaking of the Logies, that was when you and I re-met after we'd met at work experience all those years previously. And then I remember I met you at the Logies. I was working at Channel 10 as a news presenter at the time, and I was dating someone who'll remain nameless. But I met met you, Peter. You got me a glass of champagne. It was at the Channel 9 after party. And I remember thinking as we were chatting, why can't I go out with someone like this? Oh, you're very kind. <laughs> oh, now, come on. Don't be sheepish. How many years have we been married? 18. Yeah, exactly. No, I remember that, Jessica. I remember getting you the champagne. I was single at the time and I just started at 60 Minutes, so my focus on everything was just travelling the world and uh, and having a great time as a reporter. Um, but I remember fondly chatting to you that night and um, getting you that champagne. Very nice. And what then subsequently happened was I found myself single and I decided to ask you out on a date mm-hmm. because I was tired of meeting... The wrong person. The wrong person. And so I'm a huge believer in you've just got to go for things sometimes. Mm-hmm. So remember, I <laughs> rang you, my darling. You did. A mutual friend rang me and said, mate, ask Jessica Rowe out on a date. I said, mate, not interested. Not And interested. I didn't know this at the time. I didn't know that Tony had to convince you to go out with me. Because I was focusing on my new career at 60 Minutes. I'd just come out of a divorce and I was pretty, pretty shattered by that and I wasn't ready to commit to anyone. <laughs> I was only ready to commit to 60 Minutes and learn a very challenging you know, unique role as in that incredible television program. But anyway, he badgered me. I said, yeah, right, I'll ask you. She rings me. I'll take her out to dinner. And so you rang and I remember saying, I like your style. And we went out on the Sunday night and um, 18 years later, we're still together. Which is pretty amazing. It's wonderful. And I remember we had a lovely dinner at a Thai restaurant, mm-hmm. Blue Ginger it was called. Yeah, and I then mean, I remember the parking ticket I got. Oh, I cannot believe that is what you think about. <laughs> I cannot believe that. He's like, so what? It was Anyway, so what, yes. It was worth the parking yes, ticket. It was. And I remember you said to me, okay, I'm going off to shoot a story. I with think Greg Norman. Yeah, with Greg Norman. I'll ring you when I come back in two weeks. And I thought, yeah, here we go. I've heard that before. They're going to ring you. But you did. And it was my birthday. You rang me and you said, oh, what are you doing this Saturday night? And I said, well, it's my birthday. I'm going out with my family and a bunch of friends. And you said, I'd love to come. And I remember thinking, what? Did I say that? Yes, you did. Because there's not a lot of, I don't think, people who would suddenly want to meet basically your nearest and dearest on the second date. And Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, this is a good sign. Mm -hmm. So then I got quite excited, as I tend to do, because Mm -hmm. I love an outfit. Mm. I'm just remembering that when (laughs) I knocked on the... The door, you came, was it a mermaid outfit? It was a mermaid. Yeah. I was dressed as a mermaid. And I, was a, I, I still am pretty conservative and I was like, God, what the heck have I got here? 
So I had this wonderful dress that a friend of mine had made specially for the occasion. It was blue off the shoulder and it had sequins trailing like seaweed. And another friend did this bright blue um uh, eyeshadow and big lashes and glitter and my hair was sticking up. And as you say, you were there and I think you are in Williams boots. In my uniform, which I'm still in today. <laughs> but I remember what, again, what was so beautiful. You opened the door and you said to me, you take my breath away. Did I really say yes, that? You did. <laughs> maybe there was a maybe, maybe there was an auto cue behind you. <laughs> anyway, you take my breath away, Jessica. Oh, and you still do. Oh my god! Yes, darling. and I cope with all your outrageous behaviour like in terms what? of dressing. Yeah, dressing. And even recently, when we moved house, and the removalist said this is a world record of porter robes. Um, they've never seen so many porter robes. In our house, I have a small cupboard in another bedroom. You have a very big area. In fact, I think we could own most of the coastline of New South Wales if we sold all your outfits. We could buy a lot of land. You know what I love too, my darling, is that you tolerate that in me and not only tolerate it, you let me be me. Mm. Mm. Sometimes I get a little overwhelmed and frustrated with it all, but... (laughs) What do you do? Because usually you've made the decision and you paid the money. <laughs> so it's all done. It's all done. But it, yes, you, and sadly our eldest daughter is like that. Not sadly. She's more, <laughs> she likes an outfit like me. I want to take her to the casino because she's memorised my credit card number <laughs> and uh, she's phenomenal um, at spending. Um, but no, you're, you're unique and if ever they're opposites attract, if they ever wanted to do a case study, you know, a global case study, on, I think it's you and I. Mm, very much so, but we're very, very, very happy. We are, but mm. why do you think that is the case? Why does that work? Great question. Have no idea. But you've brought me out as well. You've, you know, you've really brought me out as a person. Like when I met you, I think I think my world was very narrow, and then I enter your orbit, and you know, holy smoke, it was it was different. You know, you you. I learned all about mental health and and I didn't know about bipolar disorder. I didn't know about how it can ravage you and, you know, I got a quick, very quickly got a front row seat to your mother's bipolar disorder, which you've spoken, both of you, very public about and I've done a 60-minute story on, on it. It's the illness no one wants to talk about, a condition that's becoming an epidemic. But for me, it's personal. It's depression. That's why my wife, Jessica Rowe, and her mother, Penny, chose to be part of this report. And I see the very, the the highs and the desperate lows and I learned all about you as a, you know, 10-year-old on the bus going out to Prince Henry to the mental hospital out there with your two little sisters in tow and you standing on the suitcase to pull the cord, you know, to see your mum as she'd be in hospital for six months at a time. So suddenly my... Small world was like, opened right up and and it was incredible. And then throw 60 minutes into the mix and, you know, it was a whole new set of glasses on the world and you're a big part of that, huge part of that. And every day, you know, you're so, so smart the way you approach an issue and I, I can still be pretty black and white on my feelings about an issue, but you'll, give, you'll then bring in some counter arguments and I go, okay, I'll get that, I understand that. And I respect that because you have an incredible intellect, an incredible mind, an incredible um, care and that's, you know, every day that filters into me um, very much so, very much so. Oh, thanks, my darling. But what about when I first left Studio 10 and I remember you would say to me, uh, Pussycat, you're not on Studio 10 anymore when I'd be interrogating different arguments or discussions or issues with you. But one of our daughters, Giselle particularly, she's like you and it drives me spare sometimes because she's 12 years old and her opinions and her strength of character and her will, I go, oh, no, I've got two of them now. (laughs) But aren't you lucky? (laughs) Aren't I lucky? Why can't it just be simple? No, life isn't simple. I know it's not. You've taught me that too, Jessica. You've taught me that big time, but 
it certainly makes for an interesting life. Female dog, female cat, wife, two daughters, and me. Lots, well, lots of strong, fierce female energy, and and it is, it is, and that is absolutely magnificent as a father to see strong of character daughters and like their mother with strong opinions and strong sense of justice and strong sense of what's right and what's wrong. And I love that. And that comes from from you uh, very much so. And I know with Allegra, our 15-year-old, she really has a strong sense of justice. And, you know, she and I talk, 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 and I can irritate her greatly. But you know what? I know we've just gone off on a tangent, but with Allegra, Best thing I've done as a father, if there's any plus side to COVID, and we wish there wasn't COVID, but we've gone for a drive pretty much every night for two years, just the two of us, and she plays her music or she talks to me about issues, and that can be, you know, teenage sex, parties, drugs, what she's hearing in the playground, what she's seeing, what do I think of that, what am I going to feel, how, how am I going to feel when a boy asks me this, or what do you think boys will want to do if I go to a party, and... All of that is incredible, and I know that those trays come from from her mother, and you've you know put your real imprint on on her and Giselle, and uh, so I, I go along for the ride, and that's wonderful because our relationship is so strong, and that's you know in great part due to you. I love seeing that relationship that you have with both of our daughters, the conversations that you have and the level of, of detail that they'll want to go into you with. Mm. And, and I think as a parent, there's nothing more that you could actually hope for, that mm. you want you want your kids to come and talk to you about those things mm. that are worrying them or that matter to them. Sometimes Giselle's intellect, I just don't know where to go because her <laughs> arguments are so strong and considered and... I'll think to myself, where did that come from? That bright spark shining like a lighthouse in a storm. It's amazing. And I, uh, and again, I think that's more from you than me. But uh, so important, the communication. It's critical, actually, whether it's in a marriage or with your children or with your colleagues at work. Just talk. Yeah, talking and connection. Or and the waiter at the local pizza shop who, oh, when we go on a date, Petey. I can tell you all about oh, the waiters. I know, I know all about the waiters. Petey and, knows everyone. <laughs> and I know their stories. Oh, and it's wonderful. Well, I now accept that as part, part of, of our date night. When we first met and early on in our relationship and marriage, though, it used to do my head in that oh. I think, no, I used because I would want to just talk to you, and I would be there, and then you would suddenly be interviewing the waiter, or we'd go to the supermarket, and you would interview the person behind the checkout, or the person doing the fruit, or the parking attendant. Everyone has a story. Of course they do. Everyone does have a story, but sometimes it was like, "Can we just have the <laughs> two of us, please?" <laughs> but but again, that was a part of you that I love that. You've taught me that everyone, yes, does have a story, that everyone deserves that special time and the difference you can make to someone just by taking that time to ask them a few questions and those beautiful relationships and connections. Well, I'll tell you, Jessica, sometimes the waiters are more interesting than the people you work with in your industry. I thought you were going to say me no, and I not was going to go, what? <laughs> but you, you know, we've been in situations where we're talking to, you know, people who have on-air roles uh, at other stations or whatever, and I'll spend 45 minutes just chatting to them about them. <laughs> then I might stop to take a breath. Do you think they ever ask about <laughs> you? <me? laughs> but it's really interesting how people do have a story, but you, you you get it out of them. But it's it's the waiters and it's the people like, I know the Garbos. I know the guys who concrete the footpaths. I know all of them because... They all have something to contribute to the world and it enriches your life. And it doesn't take long to stop for a minute or two minutes or five minutes to talk to the Garbo. And, you know, you know I know the Garbos. I know. And, and I know their family stories. I know when their kids have, you know, they've been, it's been fascinating. Now, what I want to talk to you about as well is early on 
in both of our roles as parents, we hit a pretty big speed bump. And that was when I had postnatal depression. And me being the sort of person I am, less so now, but I felt like a failure when I realized I had postnatal depression. I was so ashamed and I felt I had to hide it from you and I had to hide it from everyone because I felt like I was letting a brand new family down. Mm -hmm. Remember it vividly, Jessica, and here's the the woman who's the advocate who's received an AM for all her roles in, you know, destigmatizing mental illness in our community, who has been instrumental in caring for her mother who has a lifelong battle with bipolar disorder, who will shout from the rooftops, you know, mental illness is like breaking your leg, but we've just got to accept it's part of life and we've got to care for people with it as we care for the person who has cancer or a busted leg or diabetes. So suddenly for you to feel embarrassed and ashamed, it was like, whoa. I'll never forget I was travelling so much for 60 minutes. We were away for up to eight months of the year, not in one hit, but that's the volume of travel we would do. And we had Allegra and then I was out the door and, and on the way. And Once Allegra was born, you went back to work when she was two days old. And I was on a story. I was lucky. I think I was on a Sydney story. And it wasn't long after I came home one night and I couldn't wait to get home. And uh, we had couches that faced each other in our living room in our then home. And I said, how are you going? You know, expecting it to be all beautiful and beautiful little family with the cat and the new kid and our house and what else could be better? And you said, not not good. I said, what do you mean not good? How could you not be going well? And then bang, the floodgates opened and it was on. And I thought, shit, this is... This is uh, this is very real, and I remember coming across and giving you a big hug and saying everything's going to be all right. You're not having negative thoughts, suicidal thoughts, or wanting to harm Allegra. And you said no, 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 and it was all very you know confronting. And I then remember I said we'll, we'll get help. The next day I called the obstetrician and said this is where we're at, and Jessica needs help and. She got you in straight into a specialist and we were lucky, you know, we had the ways and the means to get to the specialist. And then I remember the doctor ringing me and this lady was the most warm, beautiful obstetrician, but I saw the other side on the phone to me that day and I can still see myself sitting in the 60 Minutes cottage at my desk and she said, Peter, it's Jan. I said, oh, hi, Jan. She said, you are not travelling at all for 60 Minutes you have a very, very ill wife and you have to be here to care for her and your baby. You are not travelling. Do I make myself clear? She did not miss a beat. And uh, I went, yep, yep, of course. And, you know, then I realised it was it was full on. And then, of course, I came home one afternoon and you started writing stuff and you'd left a, a Word document open on the computer and you were writing an article for a magazine about your experiences and you talked about knives and your mum coming over and you having to throw out kitchen knives and stuff. And I think we had a little clock that you thought you could crush Allegra's skull with and it was... And what's important to to mention here is that it wasn't as if I thought I would do that. I imagined that it might happen. Yes, but that's still confronting for me to read. And I remember you drove in and uh, and I, I went up and said, hey, I've just read this, you know, and just comforted you and, and but it was like, wow, this is it was very serious. But if there's any upside out of this, you're okay, we got the treatment and you and I became advocates for postnatal depression because I think it was really important for not only the person who had the postnatal, that being you, and the impact on you, but it was important for the partner to speak as well. And I remember a lovely lady, Dr. Nicole Hyatt from Beyond Blue at the time, asked me, it was, I thought it was quite inspired. She said, I want to record you and your experience for the fathers out there. So we did. And then there's two instances. I was hosting a function in Canberra, charity function for brain cancer, and this Australian Federal Police officer was one of the guests and she came up to me and she dragged a husband who was, I'll never forget it, he was a classic, you know, male 
classic male, and he was a tough cop. And he said, you know, thank God you did that video because it gave me an insight into what my wife was going through, what you went through. And then we were on Avoca Beach on the central coast of New South Wales and I could see this man, he was looking at me and he wanted to come and say something and he wanted to come and say something. And then he did come and say, Peter, my wife has postnatal depression and what you and your wife have done helped me and what you did in your video helped me understand from a male perspective. So that was really important, the whole journey and experience. And I can tell you that I've been in the company of recently, you know, some pretty senior people with high profiles and it's amazing when the cameras stop rolling and we're just having a chat away, they'll say, the way your wife has spoken about postnatal depression, her experiences, she's written about it in the books, that the help that has given me and my wife or me and my husband has been quite remarkable and it bowls you over because that was 15 years ago and you, you'd be surprised who these people are, um, but it's comforting. And it makes it worthwhile totally. talking about it. And for me, I'll never forget how kind and beautiful you were that night because I was so afraid of telling you because I felt like I was letting you down, mm. a brand new baby down, mm. and I felt like a failure. I felt mm. like I was a bad mum. Mm. We'd gone through IVF mm. to have Allegra. And the whole Today Show experience as well. That was our little secret, wasn't it? It was the thing that sustained us as all that rubbish went on at the Today Show and your role on the Today Show. At least we had the IVF journey and we'd trek along to the IVF clinic and go, you know, stick it to, to all these, you know, everyone having their opinion about you and so on. That was the thing that only mattered to us, only mattered to us. And remember there was the board at the IVF clinic? Yes, full of photos of mums and dads and the brand new babies. So I would go in and I would uh, clear a space on that board and I'd say, well, that's where our photo's going to go, okay, because I think we did four attempts and it wasn't easy. Um, and then at, at the obstetricians, I also found a little spare space. So that's where ours is going to go. A lot of colleagues at Channel 9 now, a lot of wonderful um, mums, new mums have said, oh, we saw your photo on the board at the obstetricians. And, uh, you know, that was a goal. That was a goal, like buying that pink bottle of Krug champagne and putting it down in the garden shed. I said, right, we're going to, I'll get that out of the garden shed. Cost a bomb. But God, it tasted good. When? We brought Allegra home from the hospital. And it's so important, I think, to have those bubbles of hope that you hold on to. Mm. Going through the IVF, it, there would be times when you would feel hopeless mm. and you your spirits would be so low because you'd think, this is never going to happen for mm. us. Mm. And both of us desperately wanted to be parents. Mm. And then there'd be other times when that bubble would be fuller. Mm. And you'd think, yes, 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 we can do it. Mm. And I think, too, that brought us closer going through that together. I remember maybe it was our third attempt and we were driving through Huskisson. I think we were staying at Hyams Beach and we were waiting desperately for the mobile to ring from the IVF clinic to say, um, you know, yep, it's all, it's all go. It's all go. And uh, I can still see the park. We pulled over. I can still see it. And we're talking 15-plus years ago. And it was another failure. It was like, hmm. And I remember saying to you at the time, you know what, Jessica, if we've just got each other, that'll do me. We don't have to have a family, you know, because I could see what it was doing to you and your body. And it's not easy as many of the mums and dads who listen to this podcast will know who've gone through IVF. It's, it's challenging and it really wreaks havoc on your body and your mental health, everything. And you said, no, no, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. And then I remember <laughs> I was at 60 Minutes and it was, ah, oh, Peter, Peter, we need you to go to uh, Europe on Friday and then you'll go to Los Angeles. And, then, uh, and I remember saying, I can't go. I'm sorry, I can't depart on Friday. No, no, we've got to go. We're going on Friday. 
got to go. And I said, no, no, I'm sorry, I can't go. I really can't go this Friday <laughs> because I had to be at the IVF clinic to play my role in providing the sperm <laughs> to... Um, Essential role. <laughs> and, and it was just a non-negotiable. But I couldn't, and I was saying that for very personal reasons, I can't go, like, I'm not going to tell you why, but... And in the end, I went into um, the executive producer's office, John Westacott, and uh, I sat down and I said, Westy, my mum knows, my dad knows, Jessica's mum knows, Jessica's dad knows, Jessica knows and I know, and now you're going to know. I can't go to Los Angeles this Friday because we are on our fourth attempt at IVF and I have to be there. But fuck it if I'm going to tell everyone in this office why. But it's so personal and he just, now Westy was a, you know, tough operator and he got very emotional and he said, you're not going anywhere. You're staying here. You're staying here. You're going to do this. This was great. He was so caring. I'll never forget it. And uh, anyway, we didn't. I departed, I think, on the Saturday or the Sunday. and Everything was fine. And with IVF, you have a blood test two weeks later and it's it'll tell you whether you're pregnant or not. And we worked out that I would be in Milan at that point um, and you would ring me at three in the morning on my Nokia phone. I'll never forget that Nokia phone. And I'll never forget I was in my Qantas pyjamas in the Hilton Hotel in Milan and at three in the morning my Nokia rang and I heard, you're going to be a father. And it was like, wow. So the bump in your tummy was called Milano and that Milano was in Allegro, who was 15 years old and strong-willed and beautiful and and it slay the world. But it was worth it. It was worth every every tear and dollar and you know. And heartache. It heartache. was so <laughs> worth it. I, I remember that too. I remember lying on the couch in our home looking up at the ceiling because I'd been waiting for the call from the clinic first of all to to hear whether or not um, the embryo, the blastocyst, you know, had taken, so to speak, and I rang and I got that wonderful news and I remember ringing you and my voice was quavering and we both just sobbed together on yeah. the phone. And and I think too, in a funny way, with Allegra, her determined spirit, I think that has got a lot to do with how she yeah, arrived. Arrived <laughs> because she was very much hard fought and we wanted her so much. Mm. And also she then was growing inside of me during all of that terrible Today Show that she mm. hung on in mm. through all of that terrible yeah. time. Yeah, amazing. Amazing. But, you know, we're not the only people that go through IVF. I'll never forget I still had three weeks on the road with the producer, the cameraman and the sound man. And I couldn't tell him a thing. Couldn't say a word. But I'll tell you what, when I got home to John Westacott back at the 60 Minutes Cottage, the boss, I went in and I said, I've got some news, but you can't tell anyone. I said, pregnant. And he just got teary. Hard news man. Great man. It was lovely to share that with him. It's great joy. Such a joy. What I do want to ask about, mm -hmm. just one more thing that I think is important to talk about, is how much you support me through life and at certain times when I have needed you so much through the postnatal depression, but also before that, going through the whole Today Show. Mm -hmm. And I'll remember the time when I decided to take the job and you were ambivalent and, and worried that mm. that was the wrong thing for me to be doing. But you still supported me because I can be very determined when I set my mind to something. No, nope, I wanted to give it a mm. crack. And I, I remember you saying, oh, are you sure? I don't know about this. But you backed me. And then it, it did all implode. I can still remember saying to you, you know, Channel Nine's in a really 
unsettled place, perhaps the most unsettled it's been in its history. And I'm conservative, I'm not a risk taker, and you are. And I said, you know, really think about this. And you said, no, I'm going to do it. It's not every day you are offered the co-hosting role of an iconic Australian television program. I couldn't argue with that. I said, you're spot on, spot on. And uh, you, I thought you were amazing at that job. And, and, and you know, circumstances conspired uh, and it didn't last and that's history and there's no use trolling over all of that now because it's not going to benefit anyone. But I'll tell you what, you, the admiration and just reinventing yourself and what you've achieved is just stratospheric in my mind and, you know, I think you inspire a lot of people because it was so public. I'd be in Europe and I'd I'd see the papers before you would on the internet and I'd go, oh, jeez. I'll never forget being in a hotel in Melbourne and I walked out one morning and the Australian newspaper was in front of everyone's front door and there was a big photo of you backing out at three in the morning with photographers outside our house. I'm thinking, God, love me, give her a break. But, you know, it's history. It's part of your story and it's part of our story and you have nothing to be ashamed of about that. You gave it a go. You will always be one of the co-hosts of that program and uh, look what you've achieved. Fantastic. Oh, and I wouldn't have been able to go through that time without you there. And like you said, I remember you used to log on from the other side of the world before the papers landed in Australia to see what it was that I'd be waking up to because you'd want to check (laughs) in on me. (laughs) I just remember I was ready to quit Channel 9 because I was so upset at the way you were treated. And uh, you said to me, we've got a mortgage to pay, Buster, so don't make such a stupid decision. Idiot. <laughs> exactly. It was great counsel because I kept going. Yes. And it's worked out all right. This is my 31st year at nine and I love every second of it. <laughs> and that's the thing because I do remember saying that to you, we cannot implode two of our careers <laughs> at the same time. Well, I remember them also saying, oh, maybe you you, you and Jessica could host the show together. I said, you're kidding me. <laughs> so you're going to ruin two careers, ruin a marriage and ruin a program in one hit. No, thank you. No, thank you. It would be a disaster because we are so different and I know that I do irritate you sometimes <laughs> with my carry-on. and It's novelty value stuff. I mean, it's not inspired, those decisions. Of course not. No, no, not at all. My darling, you are inspired and I want to know what is next for you. You've been at Channel 9 for 31 years. The job that you are now doing is your dream job. It's what you dreamt of doing since you were a little boy. Mm-hmm. So what's next? What is for you? To, to keep doing what I'm doing <laughs> and Channel 9 to keep wanting me to do what I'm doing. Um, I love what I do. I love going to work every single day. I love being part of the team. I love the relationships I have with our editors, our cameramen and women, our producers, our graphic artists our floor crew, our studio crew, it just enriches your life. I love communicating. I love the ability to be in the chair and to communicate the daily record to our audience. And I do it in a way, a lot of people think, oh, this is how you've got to be as a newsreader. I just do it as I do it. Just have a conversation almost. And feel it, but not overly feel it because it's up to the viewer to have their emotional reaction on the couch at home. But, you know, hard stories like, Remember the terrible story, appalling story about the f- father in Queensland who incinerated his wife and kids in the car and I'll never, ever forget the day of the funeral and the last shot in the story was and the reporter saying mum was buried in the same casket with her children and I came out and I was, I was so upset. But I kept going but it was with... Hell of a quaver in my voice, and uh, that—that's. But you got to march on. But you got to, you know, you you can't not just not march on, but you've got to be able to feel it as well. 
So I'll keep doing it. What's, I will just keep going. I'll do the occasional 60-minute story, which I really love. Uh, I'll do my charity work. But the family is the most important thing and, uh, you know, seeing our girls grow up and hopefully being a good role model for them. Not even hopefully you are because what it is I think about you, my darling, it's your humanity. Mm-hmm. It is your humanity that comes through and that is what touches so many people and makes you special not only at what you do but who you are and that is what matters most. Thank you, Jessica. I love you and you know <laughs> the other thing that I love it's only you and my mum that call me Jessica. Well, I call you Pussycat as well. But sometimes I go, hey, pussy. And if your mum's there, she'll, you'll hear this, cut! <laughs> <laughs> I love you, my darling. Thank you for doing this. Pleasure, Pussycat. <laughs> oh, my Petey. I just love him so much, as I hope you can hear when we talk. And we are so very different. But what is so special about our relationship is we're a team and we do bring the best out in each other. And I do feel very blessed to have him. And I know it's the best decision of my life to marry this very special man. I could talk endlessly about him, but I won't. If you want to see him, you can watch him reading Channel 9's Sydney News at 6pm every evening, or you might even catch him on my daughter's TikTok. I'm trying to get him to do more TikToks with me, but he's like, pussycat, no, I'm not doing that. But hopefully this year you might see a bit more of him in my TikToks. But for more beautiful, big conversations like this, search the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show podcast. And of course, if you haven't already, tap follow, add me to your favourites because I want to make sure you never, ever miss an episode. The Jess Rowe Big Talk Show was presented by me, Jess Rowe. Executive producer, Nick McClure. Audio producer, Nikki Sitch, supervising producer, Sam Kavanagh. Until next time, remember to live big. Life is just too crazy and glorious to waste time on the stuff that doesn't matter. Listener.